Greetings, friends. I'm John Haspel. This is a Dhamma talk from Cross River Meditation Center in Frenchtown, New Jersey. If you find benefit from this talk, please support the restoration, the preservation, and the presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma with your donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace. So this is, uh, I think it's the sixth or seventh class, maybe the fifth class in our uh, structured study of the Eightfold Path. Uh, it follows from two weeks ago, uh, the Magavabhanga Sutta, the analysis of the Eightfold Path. And if you weren't here at that class and you haven't listened to that, please do so, because that's really the keystone of this structured study. And last week, uh, Matt did a great job on teaching uh, to the Tissa Sutta, um, which basically... Uh, teaches that if you're uncertain and doubtful about your Dhamma practice and your mind is cloudy about it, meaning you don't really understand what you're doing, in that sutta, the Buddha teaches Tissa and Matt taught us that the resolution to that is the Dhamma itself and that what it takes is wholehearted engagement in the Dhamma to do this. Uh, But anybody can do it. This is not... uh, uh, The Dhamma is not taught for... People with special skills or special types of people or people with a high intellect or the right teacher or the right lineage it has nothing to do with any of that. It really does have, have to do uh, with our own commitment to the Dhamma. And so now we're at the Sakavabhanga Sutta, which is an analysis of these four truths. And so you remember the teaching from the Paticca Samuppada Sutta, the, teaching, uh, the primary teaching on dependent origination, where the Buddha teaches what he awakened to, that it was ignorance of these four truths that leads to a fabricated view of yourself in relation to the world that now colors our consciousness or our ongoing thinking. Remember, rooted in ignorance of Four Noble Truths. And so, from that point in our life, and there's no no point in a human being's life where you can define it, yeah, that's where I got ignorant. As a consequence of having a human life, most of us are ignorant of these Four Noble Truths. There's no why, when, or where about that. You know, I guess you could ask the question, how, why didn't, didn't we develop this understanding? Why, why aren't we born with this understanding? And that's a question that goes unanswered because there is no answer to it. But there is a resolution to our ignorance. And it, it's what Matt taught last week, and it's wholehearted engagement with the Eightfold Path to develop an understanding of these four truths. And so I just used an awful lot of words to point to something that is very simple and basic, and it's understanding these four truths. And again, every human being has the capacity to do so, which means we all have the capacity to awaken, to develop full human maturity. The Sakavabhanga Sutta, the analysis of four noble truths. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying at Deer Park in Isipatana. He addressed those gathered. Friends, it was here that I set in motion the unexcelled, nothing above it, wheel of Dhamma. And notice the Buddha didn't say this is the first turning of the wheel. This is the only turning of the wheel. And that, some of you that have been in modern Buddhist practice will know that what that is referenced to. Those that haven't heard it, don't worry about it. It doesn't matter because the Buddha didn't teach it. Um, but what he's referring to here is, that, is the very first time uh, in human history, these four noble truths were presented, and that was in the Dhammachaka Pavatana Sutta that the Buddha presented to the five buddies that he was wandering around northern India with for the previous six years, all seeking understanding. And so he, that was a very brief teaching on four noble truths. 
And you remember that in that teaching, uh, Kandana, who was one of that group, understood uh, in the most profound way, he awakened, uh, what the Buddha meant. And, and at the end of that sutta, Kandana declared that all conditioned, he was saying this to, to the Buddha, his buddy, he's saying, all conditioned things that arise are subject to impermanence, to pass away. And the Buddha said, you are now on a Kandana, meaning you understand. And in that one statement is all the understanding that we're looking for. Understanding the nature of impermanence and our relationship to it, which means we cannot establish a permanent self. Stop trying. And so how do human beings try to establish a permanent self in their imagination? <clears throat> I'm the best meditation teacher. I'm the best painter. I'm the best golfer. I'm the best this. I'm the best that. Or some of us have to be the worst in life in order to justify ourselves. I'm the worst at this. I'm the worst at that. The whole world is against me. Everything stinks. That's all a fabrication because it's simply not true. As we'll learn in this sutta and throughout the Dhamma, that stress and, and struggle, discontent, disappointment is part of a human life. And why is that the most profound t- truth? Because we want to ignore it. We, don't, we do not want to accept that in life there's going to be some stress and suffering. And so we only want the other side of that, which is pure pleasure. Everything has to be the way I want it. Well, how can anything be the way I want it if everything changes moment by moment? It can't be. So radical acceptance allows me to stay at peace and cease eye-making in this moment. Not because I told you so, not because the Buddha told you so, not because Matt told you so last week. It's because it's the truth. It's what brings us liberation. That's why we do it. So we're not doing this on faith. We're not doing it to please anyone else. We're doing it for ourselves, to awaken. The unexcelled wheel of the Dhamma. The Buddha continues, My Dhamma cannot be corrupted by any Brahmin, Deva, Mara, Brahma, or anyone in the world. Again, the Buddha never wasted any words, so why is he saying that? What he's saying from 2,600 years ago is look deeply and find his Dhamma, because no one can corrupt it. And ever since the Buddha's time, most, careful how I say this, most Buddhist practitioners have wanted to adapt, accommodate, or embellish the Buddha's Dhamma to fit their own views or the views of their lineage or some famous teachers such as Dogen's uh, revelation of his understanding or Nagarjuna or any of those. Um, again, I'm talking about two um, uh, Zen practitioners, um, but they all had their own point of view and had nothing to do with what the Buddha did. It's okay what they did. There's nothing wrong with what they did. And people that follow those teachings are, are doing what they think is best for them. But it, according to the Buddha, it's corrupted. But the Dhamma is still here and it's in this room. No one can corrupt the revelation, the declaration, the description, the structure, the Eightfold Path, the explanation, and the clear and direct teaching of four noble truths. And here they are. The first noble truth is the noble truth of stress and suffering. There is dukkha. As a consequence of having a human life, there's going to be stress and suffering. Get over it. And maybe the Buddha is not putting it that bluntly, but I am. Because it is the preoccupation with, with managing stress and suffering, meaning trying to make it different. The things that are our stressors that we get caught up in. We spend our whole life trying to do that. As opposed to understanding what's occurring and being at peace with it. The second noble truth is the noble truth of the origination of stress. And what is that? It relates directly to the, to the, the dependent origination from ignorance of these four noble truths comes all the pain and suffering in the world, the origination of stress is that ignorance. And again, okay, where does ignorance come from? You can just say that as a consequence of having a human life, 
you are ignorant to these four truths. And that's all the Buddha is teaching that we're ignorant of. He's not saying we're just we're ignorant automatons and we can never learn anything, or this would be a waste of time, wouldn't it? But he is saying, and he's hitting us right between the eyes, you're ignorant of these four things. And that is the origination of all the stress and suffering in your life. Then he says, the third noble truth is the noble truth of the cessation of stress and suffering, of dukkha. That points directly to impermanence. In fact, you could characterize the four noble truths as a lesson in impermanence, or true vipassana. We're going to get to our uh, yearly structured study of, of true introspective insight. But this is what it's about. It is into the nature of impermanence in relation to a misunderstanding of myself, ignorance of what it means to be a human being, and the resulting stress and suffering that follows from that. Impermanence, the not-self characteristic, and a resulting dukkha are the three marks of human existence. If you have a human life, you're marked by these. You know, the, the, the sign of the beast on your forehead that some people like to talk about. This is our mark. This is the mark of our, this is the burden of our human life. But it's only a burden when we don't understand it. There's freedom in understanding this burden and letting it go or abandoning it. And then the fourth noble truth is the truth of impermanence and how to use impermanence to awaken. The fourth noble truth is a noble truth of the Eightfold Path of practice that leads directly to the cessation of stress. Then the Buddha continues, Friends, and he says this in many, many suttas, the idea of wise associations. Friends, associate with wise disciples. A disciple is someone who is, in non-religious terms, is someone who is developing their own discipline to develop the Dhamma. Associate with wise disciples, such as Sariputta and Moggallana. You remember the story about both, they, they both came to the Buddha about two weeks into his dispensation. They spent another couple of weeks with the Buddha and awakened, gained full human maturity. And both Sariputta and Moggallana were uh, major actors. They're, they're mentioned in many different suttas as teaching the Dhamma. Uh, Sariputta more than Moggallana, but Buddha continues. Sariputta and Moggallana are well-trained. They're focused, they're wise, and they're sympathetic to those developing a life integrated with the Eightfold Path. All of those things are important to look for in a Dhamma teacher. Are they well-trained? Are they focused? Meaning, are they only teaching this Dhamma? And remember, the Buddha is teaching this at a time when he was here. He was overseeing the development of his own Dhamma in the world. And he noticed people taking license with his Dhamma even back then. They're well-trained, they understand what they're doing, they stay focused on it. They've developed wisdom. And because of that, they can be sympathetic to you as a Dhamma practitioner. They understand it. We cannot have sympathy with another human being, true sympathy, simpatico, right? Unless we really understand them. So the idea that I can be sympathetic to someone without understanding is, is a lie. It has to be. How can I be sympathetic to you if I don't really understand the nature of your suffering? That doesn't mean that there's not compassionate people in the world but we see the destruction that organized compassion without wisdom can bring. And I'm talking about things like the Crusades and the modern jihad, etc., etc. Things that we do uh, in the name of our religion because whatever you know, that excuse is for oppressing people. We are sympathetic. Because I've developed a Dhamma the way it's intended. I, can, I understand the nature of your suffering. We talk a lot about on retreat how important it is to be mindfully present. We do it here too, but more on retreat. To be mindfully present with other people. To meet people where they are. That's what the Buddha is saying, again, from 2,600 years ago. 
if you're going to teach this, you better be sympathetic to people or you're not the teacher. Again, these are the things to look for in the teachers. We have established that here, and it, and it truly is remarkable when I think about what's developed here um, in really a relatively short time. We have such, such well-focused teachers. I'm not just saying that because three of them are sitting in front of us. It's remarkable how well-trained, focused, and sympathetic they are. And I, like I said to David this morning, when I listen to the, our other teachers teach, that's the one thing that really strikes me is how sympathetic these three are and the other two that are sitting here, how they are to you, to our Sangha. And that's the vibrancy of our Sangha. That's what makes it so welcoming. But each one of you has shown great sympathy for each other and for your teachers. And it, it really is remarkable. I've, I've been into you know, some of the most famous Sanghas in the world and different lineages and and I've never, I've never seen this in any of those places except here. And I think, and I know, it's because we come together not on politics, not on what's going on in the world, not on my teacher's better than your teacher. We come together on a Dhamma. And it truly is the Dhamma that is teaching all of us. Let me continue. Developing a life integrated with the Eightfold Path. Saraputta is like a mother giving birth. Saraputta can, can inspire the Dhamma. He's like a mother giving birth. And Moggallana is like the nurse that attends to the baby. So throughout the sutta, the, all the suttas, you hear reference to Saraputta often. But every now and then, the Buddha would call Moggallana. And Moggallana preferred a very um, secluded life. He didn't, he didn't really hang with the Sangha much. But when there was a spe- specific aspect of the Dhamma to teach, the Buddha would, would summon Moggallana, come and teach this. It's, you know, it's your, your time to do it. Again, we are, because Moggallana was sympathetic in that case, we are all developing that same sympathy for each other. Saraputta trains others in developing the Dhamma, Moggallana to the highest culmination. Saraputta is able to declare, teach, describe, set forth, reveal, explain, and make plain. And my... 200 years in modern Buddhism, it was a long time. Nobody ever made plain the Dhamma. And again, I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not, I'm not casting any, anything on except my experience was. Nothing was made plain. It was always a mystery. And a mystery is a real good hook, isn't it? Especially if you want to solve the mystery. You keep going. You keep going even though you can't solve it. And I could never solve the riddle of what was taught. In fact, there's one form of modern Buddhism that teaches it that it is the riddle is it itself. In fact, a lot of that practice is um, focused around solving riddles that can somehow give you enlightenment. It didn't work for me. And again, I'm not saying don't do it, but the Buddha is saying that a teacher will make this Dhamma plain. It's not complicated. It's not hard to understand. It's not hard to see. They make plain the Four Noble Truths in detail. Having said these words, the Buddha left for the days abiding. Sariputta then addressed those gathered. Friends, it was here that the Tathagata, the Buddha, set in motion the unexcelled wheel of Dhamma. Again, he repeats the Buddha's words. This Dhamma cannot be corrupted by any Brahman, Deva, Mara, Brahma, or anyone in the entire world. No one can corrupt the revelation, the declaration, the description, the structure, the Eightfold Path, the explanation and the clear and direct teaching of Four Noble Truths. So if you feel like you haven't gotten a clear and direct teaching on Four Noble Truths, ask. Ask your teacher, because this is the Dhamma. That's what we're here for. 
And again, Saraputta reiterates, the noble truth of stress and suffering, the noble truth of the origination of stress, the noble truth of the cessation of stress, and the noble truth of the Eightfold Path of Practice leading to the cessation of stress. Friends, what is the noble truth of stress and suffering? So remember, Saraputta now is teaching exactly how the Buddha taught the first noble truth, and everyone up till now, including in this Sangha, 2,600 years later, is teaching these same four noble truths. Why? Because they're still relevant. They're just as relevant today as they were 2,600 years ago. When I first started teaching uh, in the building right next door to us, there were always people coming to class that had just listened to a different podcast or had a poem or a different type of teaching and they wanted to incorporate it here. Some people wanted to smudge our, our Sangha before each class because that would get the evil spirits out of here. That's all well and good, and people can believe those things. It's just not what we do here. So we never, ever indulge in any type of practice. There's never been a word uttered within Cross River Meditation Saga that the Buddha didn't first teach, except our own take on it. So the birth is stressful, sickness is stressful, aging is stressful, death is stressful, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair are all stressful. Not getting what is desired is stressful. And receiving what is undesired is stressful. And then Saraputta concludes this in the same way the Buddha always did, by saying, in short, the five clinging aggregates are stressful. Form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, and consciousness, or ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths, is the five clinging aggregates, and it is the ongoing personal experience of stress and suffering. We cobble these five aggregates together, we cling them together, and we say, this is me when it's all a fabrication. There's no permanence to form, feeling, perceptions, mental fabrications, or consciousness. And one simple sit in jhana meditation teaches us that, that powerful truth. I take a breath, I focus my mind and my body, I exhale, and the next moment, I'm thinking about something else. That's impermanence of thought, but it's reflected off our cushion in the impermanence of all things. And so now take it right back to that idea of impermanence of thought, every thought. If human beings' thinking process is impermanent, then everything in the world has to be, isn't it? At least our perception of it. Everything. So why do we cling to form, to feelings, to perceptions, to mental fabrications? Because of the last aggregate, consciousness. Consciousness is, in this case, is ignorance, is ongoing thinking rooted in ignorance of four noble truths. <clears throat> the resolution is right in front of us. And Saraputta doesn't leave us right there by saying birth, birth, sickness, etc. What is birth? Whatever takes birth. Again, the Buddha is not talking and Saraputta is not talking about physical birth. And this is where I, almost every Buddhist practitioner gets caught and the Abhidhamma leads to and interprets this in a completely different way explaining that there's at least three um, physical entries into the world before one is born as a human being. Maybe so, but the Buddha never taught that. And why didn't he teach it, even if it was true? Well, he, wouldn't, he, didn't, he didn't teach it because it's not true, but it's not relevant to the Dhamma. What the Buddha is teaching us and what Saraputta is teaching us, whatever takes birth. What took birth? What has taken birth? What took birth? Me! Whatever has taken birth, whatever has taken birth is subject to ignorance and resulting stress. What has taken birth? Me. 
I don't need any other explanation about where and how I got here. I don't need to even understand the gestation process. If I'm getting into biology, that's important. But it's irrelevant for me to understand even how I got born in a physical sense. Does it? Because I'm here. I don't have to understand that process. And even more removed from that would be go, going into my imagination of some grand cosmic event that allowed me to get born. That's the ultimate mind-making, isn't it? There's something special about my birth. No, I'm, I'm another human being. Right now, one of nine billion trying to figure this out. And I have a way to do that. And what is birth? Whatever takes birth, the descent, the coming to be, the coming forth, the arising of the five clinging aggregates. Whatever takes birth in this moment that gives rise to the five clinging aggregates, to the ongoing personal experience of stress and suffering. The fabrication of the, of the sensuous realms of diverse beings. Again, it's a, Saraputta is, making, is poking fun at those people that need to establish themselves in non-physical realms in order to resolve the riddle of human life. Read it again. The fabrication of the sensuous realms. The fabrication. They're not true. There's no such thing as other realms. There's just whatever takes birth. This is called birth. And what is aging? Aging, aging is increasing decrepitude, brokenness, graying, wrinkling, decline of the life force, John Haspel, diminishing of the mental faculties of diverse beings. This is called aging. And I'm saying that because, because I'm really cute. But it's true. We, we, all are, we all are good examples of this. And at times, each one of us are better examples than other, at other times. I'm a real good example of aging. And I don't give a damn about it. I manage it the best I can. It's actually an interesting thing to be able to be dispassionate about the things that change as we get older. And I'm not talking about... the. Um, I could point to things that are... Um, major illnesses, but really what I'm talking about is our relationship to ourselves. Am I going to beat the hell out of myself because of where I am in life and think that there's some kind of um, karma working against me, I'm being punished for some misdeed, or am I simply going to observe the process of a human life? And it's really interesting when you can do that. Because each and every moment is then meaningful. I don't need it to be any different. And you all have that same sympathy for yourself. It's the ultimate in gentleness when we can understand the impermanence of ourself in relation to the world and be at peace with it. Because each and every moment, I have, Devlin and I had a, a great talk yesterday, and it really was about, in general, but, but also focused on the ever-changing quality of human life. And it's remarkable. Look what's happened in the past couple of years. And look what keeps happening. As awful as it is, it's such a good example of quick change in the world. How are we going to deal with it? How are we going to deal with the conflict in our mind first? This is called aging. And what is death? Death is the passing away, the breaking up, the disappearance, the completion of time. An important statement. The Buddhist teaching is, again, from 2,600 years ago, there is no time after this time. Lose that note. Again, it was such a common belief during the Buddhist time and it's lasted throughout human history that there's something beyond this. And we've created that. The first time the saber-toothed tiger got our spouse, we figured there's got to be a better way and so we created things outside of here that didn't have saber-toothed tigers 
and tar pits and that kind of things and big dinosaurs and all that. No, this is a human life with all of those things. With the Putins and the Omicrons and the and the possibly right hand and the Mother Teresas and the Nelson Mandela's and you know all the all the good and the bad people in the world, it's all part of us. And all of those people have aspects of what we carry with us. What are we going to do with it? The casting off of the body, the interruption of the life faculty, faculty, and the dissolution of the five clinging aggregates of diverse beings. This is called death. It happens to everyone. So what does it mean to me as a Dhamma practitioner? What should I do about it? At any point in my life, I should recognize the impermanence of my own human life and make a determined effort in that moment to understand what it means to be a human being. Because at least in that way, I can live a human life instead of waste a human life trying to get someplace else or denying what this human life is like, that there will be times of stress and suffering. And what is sorrow? Again, relate this now to what Saraputta and the Buddha just taught us. Sorrow relates to the, just to the, to the lack of acceptance of this aging process and what, what occurs from birth to death. And what is sorrow? Sorrow is sadness, this suffering of misfortune, being touched by pain. This is called sorrow. We all have it. And sometimes moments are more sorrowful than others. Um, every now, when I do watch the news, now it is really just an, ex- an, um, an experience of sorrow. Because it, it's more stunning to me now what human beings can do to each other than it's ever been in my life. And I, I think it's because I understand it. And so when I was a kid, I grew up watching this kind of the same pictures, but not 24-7, of uh, towns in Vietnam getting bombed to hell. And it didn't have the same impression on me. I didn't, I didn't really get that people die out of greed, aversion, and deluded thinking. But I understand it now. And I'm not saying that to bring our class down. But what we should realize, what is, this is what goes on in our world. It's a world of great joy, and it's a, it's a world of great sorrow. <clears throat> How do we make sense of that? Well, we can't grasp after just the things that are joyful. We have to accept both sides of it. We have to understand what's occurring. Because this is the world we're living in. And if we deny it, and it's easy to deny a lot of things in where we are. You know, we, we, the, the, we've been kind of isolated in, in, for certain reasons. But we're still living in the world, and these things are occurring in the world. And we can't help but be affected by it. But we shouldn't dwell on them either. And we shouldn't lose our minds over it. And the one thing we have to do have not to is hate anyone because every time we do that and try to justify it we've lost our mind it's easy to do to, with certain people today and I'm not just talking about Putin we could get into different world leaders etc but it's always harmful to ourselves and it never does anything to, to, to bring change into the world if we want to end conflict in the world we end conflict in our minds first and this is how we do it And what, uh, and what is regret? Again, not wanting things to be as they have already happened. It's the most foolish thing we can ever think of because it's already happened. <clears throat> except, let me put a caveat on there, except when we look back at our behavior that is not in line with right speech, right action, and right livelihood. We, but we should not have regret. We should feel a sense of shame but not the kind of shame that we beat ourselves up with, just the kind of shame that recognizes poor behavior that's hurtful to ourselves or others. But what is regret? 
Regret is the grieving, the crying, the weeping, the wailing, the regret of suffering from misfortune, of being touched by pain. This is called regret. So the Buddha teaches us that there will be pain, and then he says, don't take it personal. <clears throat> Do not regret the pain and suffering. There's nothing personal about it. And what is pain? Pain is bodily pain, bodily discomfort, pain or discomfort from bodily contact. This is called pain. And what is distress? Distress is mental pain and mental discomfort. Pain or discomfort from mental contact. This is called distress. It's interesting that the Buddha separated this out, didn't he? That our physical body feels physical pain, but there's another type of pain called mental distress. But we've we found out in the last 30 or 35 years that mental stress is one of the leading causes of human pain and suffering, of human disease. The Buddha recognized that 2,600 years ago and said, you've got to get rid of it because it'll kill you. And what is distress? Distress is mental pain and mental discomfort. Pain or discomfort from mental contact. Me coming in, in contact with the world, with you and the things of the world. From a mind rooted in ignorance, it reacts and it, it causes distress. This is called distress. And what is despair? Despair is despondency and desperation of anyone suffering from mis misfortune or touched by a painful thing. This is called despair. So we've all taken that gamut from the initial pain to distress to despair. Every one of us has done it. And notice the Buddha or Saraputta doesn't say, you're all fools, you're all idiots for doing it. He said, no, it's a common human condition. But there's a way out of it. And what is the stress of not getting what is desired? And those being subject to birth, subject to having a human life. The wish arises, may I not be subject to birth? Denying what's occurring in your life. <clears throat> Anything that occurs, it, it could be you fell and broke your leg. leg. I mean, in the, in the immediate moment, you're not going to be too happy about it. Or your car breaks down, or you had a fight with your dog, etc., etc., etc. You're not getting what is desired in that moment. So reaction arises. Distress. Mental disease. Who's the cause of it in that moment? The individual. I am. Because of the way that I'm thinking. In those being subject to birth, the wish arises, may I not be subject to, to birth? May, I, may birth not come to me? Wishing, again, Saraputta continues, wishing <clears throat> does not bring cessation. So I can wish, rooted in regret, that this moment be different or that I be different. But it doesn't bring cessation, does it? And in this context, it just brings further suffering. Saraputta continues or concludes by saying, this is, oops, there's a typo there, this is the stress of not getting what is desired. We do it to ourselves. May I not be subject to birth? May birth not come to be, meaning in this moment I don't want this. And wishing does not bring cessation. Wishing can manifest in very interesting ways, because I engage in, in external forms of wishing for a lot of a lot of my life, excuse me. So in me, that wishing manifested in three different ways, and, and that they're, these are very common. One was prayer. I never understood who I was praying to, what other people did, so I tried it out. One was chanting. I thought that, and I was taught that chanting, in fact, I was taught that even the words, the sound of the word, could somehow have a physical effect. That was a form of wishing, wasn't it? 
I'm praying for something to be different. I'm chanting for something to be different. Or I visualize something to be different. Such as, instead of being mindful of my breath in meditation, I imagine something. I imagine Avalokiteshvara, the Buddha that you see with eight different arms. Or I, I, I imagine a candle or a sunlit beach or something like that. That's all wishing that something be different. But when, I take, when I'm mindful of my breath in this moment, I have united my mind and my body, and in that moment, that's all that I am. And again, for most of us, the next moment, our thoughts or our feeling interrupts that, and we learn to reclaim our mind through our breath. Not through something imagined. Not, not wishing that something be different in this moment, by simply taking a breath and understanding what's occurring. This is a stress of not getting what is desired. Furthermore... In misinformed human beings, subject to birth, sickness, aging, and death, sorrow, regret, pain, distress, and despair, the wish arises, oh, may I not be subject to birth, sickness, aging, death, etc., etc., etc. These things are not avoided by wishing. Again, Saraputta is making a very emphatic point, isn't he? Stop wishing, stop praying, stop chanting, stop visualizing, and actually face your demons, yourself. Learn to understand yourself. This is the stress of not getting what is desired. And what are the five clinging aggregates that continue stress? It is these five clinging aggregates as the vehicle that we ride throughout our life until something causes that vehicle to run out of gas that only continues suffering. The five clinging aggregates are the clinging to form aggregate. This is me. And once I identify that this is all I can be rather than understand what I am, then there's always going to be limitations. No matter who, I mean, in my case, it wasn't, you've heard me say this a million times, I guess I'm clinging to it, I wasn't tall enough to play center field for the Yankees, and that was a big disappointment when I was a kid. It's completely irrational now, but we all do that. In one way or another, we're not good enough. When I was a wrestler, you know why I thought about this, I could never get down to 127, but that, that was the weight I wanted to because there was somebody in the next town that I wanted to beat. And I, I almost killed myself when you're not eating. You know, wrestling is a pretty grueling sport anyway in that way. You, you, you try to get as light as you can. And it, but anyway, it was, it was because I had a view in my mind that I put myself through a year of incredible stress so I could do one thing, f- to fit the image of what I thought I should be. I'm 127 pounds, by the way. I finally made it. <laughs> it was just as tough to get here, though, was it? The clinging to form aggregate. The clinging to feeling aggregate. How, do we, how often do we describe our days by the way we felt during the day? And if one moment in that day wasn't really great, we tend to cling to the bad moment. Eh, I had a bad day today. That's clinging to the feeling aggregate, isn't it? And the day's already gone. How do you feel right now? Take a breath, unite your mind and your body, and feel calm. That's our choice. We don't feel lousy or have bad days by accident. We, we have good, good and bad days that are characterized that way out of ignorance. I don't have to have a bad day or a good day. I can have a calm and peaceful day if I understand the nature of my days. That's full human maturity. That's waking up. That's what it means. The clinging to perception aggregate. Look at what's the clinging to perception aggregate and the clinging to fabrication aggregate. All the ills in the world can be can uh, can be explained by that, by clinging to fabricated views. 
Whether it's me thinking I got to punch the guy in the nose next door because he plays his music too loud or I got to bomb the hell out of the next country because I want it. It's the same clinging to perception and, and clinging to a fabrication, all rooted in clinging to the consciousness aggregate. But when we free up these aggregates through understanding, they no longer define us and they no, no longer define the world. These five clinging aggregates, that, it is these five clinging aggregates that continue stress. This, friends, is the noble truth of stress. Does anybody here not understand what I just said and what we just learned? In the room or online? You understand four noble truths. You understand what were there. And again, the Buddha didn't just teach this. Our Buddha didn't just teach this and everybody was good to go. This, but we're pointing out this is what we're gaining an understanding about. This is the overarching framework of our life. And what is the noble truth of the origination of stress? That very craving that makes for becoming further in. I got father ignorant. Boy, I got to do something. How does that sound? The very craving that makes for father ignorant. Father was ignorant, I know. That very craving that makes... I don't even like saying that now. He wasn't. He was a good guy. The very craving that makes for becoming further ignorant. How can we crave to be further ignorant? Anybody. Why would we crave to be further ignorant? <clears throat> Nobody has the answer. By not recognizing our ignorance in the first place. Yay! Gold star there. We can't recognize our ignorance because we're ignorant. It's, in, it, it's part of the word. The root of the word ignorance is ignore. If you're ignorant, you're compelled to ignore your own ignorance. That's what the Buddha realized. That's what the Buddha described. Uh, I can't think of the name of the sutta now. The Nagara Sutta, where he's talking about the, getting stuck in his, in, the, in his mind, the feedback loop of his mind. That's what this is. We're ig we ignore our own ignorance through these structures that we've created about who we are in the world we live in. It's not that way. The Buddha would often say, that's like a mirage. He never said it was a mirage, because that would mean that it's not real. But with the way we look at the world is like a mirage. It's a magic trick that we're playing on ourselves, because our perception is rooted in a fabrication. The very craving that makes for becoming further ignorant, craving, clinging, and clinging to passion and delight, this is called the noble truth of the origination of stress. Clinging to passion and delight is another reference to eye-making in this moment. And what, friends, is the noble truth of the cessation of stress? The renunciation, the relinquishment, the release, the letting go, the remainderless, there's nothing left not a shred of ignorance left within me. The remainder was fading away and complete cessation of craving. In this moment, I don't need anything to be any different than it is. I crave for nothing. Meaning, in this moment, I do not crave to establish myself. I'm just here. I am simply a reference point to what's occurring. It's hard at first for people to even understand that. It seems like annihilation. It's one of the reasons, probably the main reason, people have difficulty doing what Tissa was being taught last week, what Matt taught. We, we're uncertain because it feels like we're, we're annihilating ourselves. What happens to me when there's no craving less, left? What you're telling yourself is that your craving is what you're using to define yourself. And so letting go of it feels like annihilation. But do you want to live a life that's rooted in constant craving, moment by moment, that this moment and I be different in this moment than I am? Because that's what we do with a mind rooted in ignorance. 
That's how we create stress for ourselves, ongoing stress. So it's not just the once in a while that we have a bad day or when we hear something in the news. It's ongoing craving that we recognize and abandon. The remainder was fading away in complete cessation of craving. This is called the noble truth of the cessation of stress, letting go of craving. And what is the noble truth of the path of Dharma practice that leads <clears throat> directly to the cessation of stress? This path is a noble eightfold path. Again, how did we, how did I get so confused about Buddhism and what a Buddha taught? It's just this. Again, you have to read the suttas and you also have to read the suttas without a lot of the fabrications that are in them. But they resolve this way. If you want to end craving, the path is the noble eightfold path. Right view. Right, well, right, Sariputta teaches, right view is knowledge with regards to stress. Understanding the first noble truth. Really what I'm doing is, under, remember the Salata Sutta, I'm understanding my contributions to my stress. Because remember, as a consequence of having a human life, there will be stress, the first noble truth. There is dukkha. But if I understand the nature of dukkha, I stop taking it personally, and so I stop craving that it be different. Greed, aversion, and rooted in deluded thinking. Right view is knowledge with regards to stress, knowledge with regards to the origination of stress, ignorance, knowledge with regards to the cessation of stress, wisdom, Knowledge with regards to the Eightfold Path of Practice leading to the cessation of stress. This is right view. And remember, the Buddha always teaches knowledge as something that is directly experienced. He's not, he's not talking about a conceptual, conceptual knowledge. He's talking about having the direct experience of the cessation of craving through this simple and direct Eightfold Path. The, no, the next... Uh, factor of the Eightfold Path is right intention. Right intention is maintaining mindfulness of the intention for renunciation, for recognizing abandoning, craving and clinging in this moment, for freedom from ill will. Why did Buddha teach that in Saraputta here so often, freedom from ill will? Because it is in our ill will towards others or towards myself that my fabrications are most obvious. And again, bringing it back to something I said, if you find yourself hating anyone, take a look at this. Because it's going to destroy your mind. Or at least it's going to color your mind in such a way that you're going to create stress. Right now, it's easy to take one guy and say, I hate him. What does that do? What does it do? It doesn't do anything. It doesn't bring resolution to anything. Understanding mind, and that's, I'm not saying that it will, Oh, that's me, John. I just need to switch to a different device. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. Didn't mean to interrupt. Nope, nope, nope. Um, it, it's it's our our feeling that we're we're justified and almost have to as a human being to hate someone who might be hurting me or the or a lot of people. <clears throat> it's still ignorance because we can understand why people might do that. If I can understand how why I might do it, if I can understand my own anger and frustration, which I, I think I have, I can understand it in another human being and I can be sympathetic. But remember, we learn the difference and it's so important. We learn the difference between approval and acceptance through the Dhamma. Without the Dhamma, we can't help but tie those two things together. In order for me to accept something, I have to approve it first. 
That's something that's rooted in eye making. But I can accept the fact that another human being is so rooted in greed, aversion, and deluded, delusion and appreciate that my mind did not go that far, it could have, that I can feel true sympathy for what we might describe as a human monster. But I could not have that same sympathy if I didn't have it for myself and everyone else. Everyone else that I see from this new perspective as suffering because of their own ignorance. Now, does, it, can, does, does anybody, and it's okay to, to not agree with me. Nobody has to agree with me. In fact, I hope you don't just agree with me because I say things. Because that's not dollar practice either. Do you all agree that we shouldn't hate anyone? And if you don't, it's okay. Yes. But you think we should? No, should not. <laughs> yeah, congratulations, everyone. You're, you're awakened. But there's not many people that feel that way today. And to me, that's real sorrow. It really is. It brings tears to my... You can probably hear it. When I think about the millions of people in the world that are driving themselves crazy because of just... They think justified hatred. That's almost as bad. It's not. But it's almost as bad as what's actually occurring on the ground. Because we'll never reach a resolution. Why don't we ask ourselves in 10 million years of human evolution to maybe 3 million as on the planet, physical planet? And we're still doing it. Why? Because we're ignorant. And we don't have to be. But at least we can take refuge. As I was sitting here this morning, I kept having the thought, I kept, I, I can't go, I, my mind kept going back to seeing these bombed out buildings and just, just feeling so fortunate that I have the true refuge of the Dhamma, that I can sit in peace and calm on my cushion and not be tied into hatred or fear or anything else. And we all did that this morning. You should give yourself an awful lot of credit, but also realize how precious this refuge is, this understanding of the Four Noble Truths. Because we're not isolated from the world, but we're not entangled in the world, because we understand, because of true sympathy. And that is right intention. Right speech. Right speech is abstaining from lying, abstaining from divisive speech, abstaining from abusive speech, and abstaining from gossip and idle chatter. This is right speech. Again, many people begin their Dhamma practice with right speech because it becomes very obvious once we start practicing this. And notice that and understand that it's not just what I'm saying to you that I need to be mindful of, but it's my self-talk that is most important. Am I being honest with myself? Or am I abusing myself because I find something that I don't like and I fall into self-loathing or hatred? And so I judge myself. Remember, that's the first level of jhana, directed thought and evaluation. It's okay when you're doing it. Take another breath and let it go. Again, because on our cushion, we're training ourselves off our cushion to not go here and recognize when we do. And if you find yourself engaging in gossip or idle chatter, stop it. If you're around people that like to gossip and engage in idle chatter, move away. It's okay. You've often heard me said, to me, the mark of a true friendship, and I used to feel like this even before I came to the Dhamma, is when two people can be together and not have to say a word to each other, that they're comfortable in that way. We do that here. You know, I notice at times, even before class, sometimes there's a lot of chatter, but sometimes... We're just all sitting here quietly, and that's okay. We don't need to talk. 
that's rare in the world. It really is. We don't see it. Most people are very uncomfortable being quiet. Abstaining from gossip and idle chatter, including internal idle chatter. This is called right speech. Right action. Right action is abstaining from taking life, abstaining from stealing, abstaining from sexual misconduct. This is right action. Again, I, we're going to have a little bit of a longer class. But, uh, Scott, I think you know the time. It's just about 9.40. So. Thank you, John. You're welcome. Um, what abstaining from taking life is obviously means we don't kill other human beings but there's exceptions to that I won't get too deep into the exceptions but they're going on right now and they're always going on but also it, it, it relates to, to the idea of we should all be vegetarians we can't there's, there's, there's huge and important vital societies on our planet I'm talking about people who live in northern climates, but sometimes in jungle communities, that they simply would die if they didn't kill animals for food. It's ridiculous to think that we, that we just say nobody should do that. We should understand that, that that's what happened. But also, from stealing, we should, certainly shouldn't take anything that doesn't belong to us. But do we, do, do we take people emotionally? We have a word for it. We take people hostage. Because that's a very subtle form of stealing, isn't it? Do we take ourselves hostage by BSing ourselves? By lying to ourselves, by thinking that we're something other than we are. We're stealing that moment from ourselves. So you can see when we practice right speech, right action, and right livelihood, there, initially it's at a very gross level. But when, as we continue to follow right speech, right action, and right livelihood, this is what guides us to very subtle levels of eye-making. And it's always reflected here, and we can always recognize it in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. Our speech will always reflect the level of mindfulness. Always. We can't escape it, so pay attention to it. And again, it's not just what's coming out of our mouth. I noticed something interesting about, and I don't know, some, using someone as an example. Um, there's some people, let me say it this way, that they, they talk a lot with their hands. And it's an interesting form of body language. The people that, that talk with their hands that aren't really happy, will, they'll, they'll talk this way. Their hands will be, they'll be giving you the back of their hand. And then there's people that are doing this. And they're always, they're open about what they're saying and they're not trying to demand. Again, this is getting into a little bit of a, not, not true science. But it's really true. And I've noticed somebody that does this a lot. And it feels like they're, they have little respect. They're, they're very condescending. And it also feels like they're pulling words out of their mouth. And you can almost see it. But we can feel that ourselves. If our... If our if our speech isn't light and flowing, it's because we're holding something back. Mm -hmm. Recognize that. That's your, that's your own um, inner sympathies telling you, wait a minute, that's not something skillful to say. It's always best to be quiet. Always. Unless you have something meaningful that's framed by this. And notice how we've structured our sangha. We don't talk about a lot of nonsense, whether it's here or up on retreat. We're always mindful of this. It's why we have such a well-focused sangha. Mostly because of right speech and right action and right livelihood at, from your teachers. We are sympathetic to you because we've developed the Dhamma to that level that we can do this. Abstaining from stealing and abstaining from sexual misconduct. The Buddha never taught... Take care, Scott. Thank you. The Buddha never taught 
celibacy except within the Sangha. Because once women started to join the original Sangha, he understood that that was simply too much of a distraction. It's just, it's just a brilliant human understanding, isn't it? We can't have men and women who are more interested in sleeping with each other if they want to develop the Dhamma. And so he said, don't do it here. But he never went into town and said, don't do it. That would be denying human life, wouldn't it? Because if everybody, if the Buddha taught celibacy and everybody in the world did it, there'd be no world after 20 or so years, or 30 or 40. He never taught, he never taught do not have sex, but he taught to bring right speech, right action, and right livelihood, if it fits, in mind, into it. I'm not kidding. That's how the, the Shakers went out of, went out of business, basically. That's, that's right. <laughs> they were solid. Yep. And it died out. Yeah. They're, they're no more, I mean, there's still people that identify that way, but Ram is right. They believed themselves right out of existence. And again, it was a fabrication. Let me continue. We're gonna, uh, right livelihood. Right livelihood is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones has abandoned dishonest livelihood and provides for themselves with honesty. This is right livelihood. When I first came across the Eightfold Path and read this, I thought, well, isn't right livelihood covered by right speech and right action? Why is he teaching this? And then it dawned on me that otherwise good and honest men and women will cut corners often. That's the word we use. Cut corners to feed uh, spouse and baby. No, you can't do it if you're a Dharma practitioner. Why? Because you'll destroy your mind. Because it's rooted in eye-making. Because you'll isolate yourself from the world by that simple action, by that, 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 little, that little shred of dishonesty or manipulation. It's not so much that you're taking something that's not freely given in, in a business sense. You're losing your life over it, literally. I'm not going to go too deep into that. Right effort. Right effort is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones internally generates the skillful desire who is persistent, who remains mindful of their, int their intent for the non-arising of unskillful qualities that have yet arisen. It's a lot of words, but to say what you've heard me say often, in this moment I'm practicing wise restraint. I am well concentrated and mindful of what's occurring in my mind. And if hate, aversion, greed is arising, I'm mindful of it. And I stop it. That have yet arisen, who remains mindful of their intent for the abandoning of unskillful qualities that have arisen. My intention in this moment is not to lie. Oh, wait a minute. That wasn't really my intention. Recognize it and abandon it. They remain mindful for maintaining non-confusion and for increasing and developing the culmination of skillful qualities that have yet arisen. What are those skillful qualities? Right speech, right action, and right livelihood, and the rest of the Eightfold Path. We understand this directly. Directly. Right mindfulness. Right mindfulness is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones remains mindful of the body. Remember the four foundations of mindfulness. Remains mindful of the body in and of itself while remaining ardent, alert, and mindful of putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. So that non-distracted state, the mind united in its body, is ardent, alert, and mindful. While, this is ongoing, the word is important here, while I'm doing this, while I am putting aside greed and distress in reference to the world. It's a process that I'm engaged in in this moment. 
while I'm doing this, while it's arising in the world, I'm, I'm steadying my mind through jhana practice. Right mindfulness is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones remains mindful of feelings in and of themselves. In and of themselves, meaning no embellishment on my part. I'm not coloring my feelings at all. It's just a feeling. It's a feeling in and of itself. And it could be a sorrowful feeling. It could be a joyful feeling. It could be an ambivalent feeling. It could be an angry, etc., etc. I I can feel all the feelings that human beings have. But I don't take them personally. And I understand where they are. So I can even feel anger when I see a building being blown to bits with people in it. And take a breath and understand that's a common human feeling. But I don't have to lose my mind over it. Does it do you understand? We're not denying our humanity. We're becoming human beings by practicing this way. I can feel anything that's appropriate for this moment. And I don't have to judge myself harshly for it. I don't have to be a good or bad person. Good meaning, oh, I'm really compassionate for those poor suffering people. If that's rooted in wisdom, that's great. But if it's rooted in a belief that I should be that way, it's a fabrication. And it can only bring harm. While remaining ardent, alert, and mindful of putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. Right mindfulness is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones remains mindful of thoughts in and of themselves, not taking our thinking personally, while remaining ardent, alert, and mindful of putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world. Excuse me. Right mindfulness is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones remains mindful of the present quality of mind. This is the fourth foundation of mindfulness. I, I say this at the end of every meditation remains mindful of the present quality of mind in and of itself. We learn to be at peace with less than peaceful mind states. In and of itself. The Buddha doesn't say you have to have one quality of mind. And that's it. But that's what's taught in much of modern Buddhism. And again, I'm not putting it down. It's also taught in most of modern religions that your your mind should be joyful because of what you're going to get. Whether it's in the next moment or in the next life. The Buddha teaches us that this is the moment that you can live, not one other one. While remaining ardent, alert, and mindful of putting aside greed and distress with reference to the world, this is right mindfulness, right meditation. Right meditation is when a skillful disciple of the noble ones has established seclusion from sensuality and unskillful mental qualities. They began their jhana meditation. They enter and remain in the first jhana. This first jhana is experienced as rapture, born of that very ple- that very seclusion. Uh, rapture, in this sense, is joyful engagement with what we're doing. And we should be joyfully engaged with Dhamma practice if we've ac- actually taken refuge in the Dhamma, because we understand what it's bringing us. Excuse me. <clears throat> rapture, born of that very seclusion. I sit on my cushion... I am joyfully engaged, and I understand this. It is accompanied by directed thought and evaluation. I'm directing my thought. I recognize that I'm caught up in my thought. I'm directing my thought back to my breath. And in that first shot, I'm evaluating it. Good, bad, or indifferent. Or am I doing it right? Furthermore, the ending of the defilements of greed, aversion, and delusion depends on the second shot, which is distilling of directed thought and evaluation. And again, notice the Buddha is not giving us a time frame. That I've, I've stilled uh, directed thought and evaluation for 8 minutes or 18 minutes or 18 years. No. 
in that moment, taking a breath, directed thought, <clears throat> and evaluation has still. In that moment, I'm not judging myself, and I, there's no tension in directing my thought mm. back to my breath. This second jhana is experienced as rapture and pleasure, now born of concentration. So just deepening our concentration to that second level, concentration is increasing. Free of directed thought and evaluation, the joy of concentration permeates their entire mind and body. And I bet you every one of, every one of you has had that experience. And again, notice Buddha's not giving a time qualification. He just says, notice it, it's going to happen. Furthermore, the ending of the defilements depends on the third jhana, which is the fading of rapture. It doesn't mean our meditation practice is now becoming miserable. It's simply no longer a quality of mind now. Our minds are becoming quieter. Joyful engagement in the Dhamma is no longer present because we've deepened our concentration. They remain equanimous, mindful, alert, and sensitive to pleasure, with the fading of rapture, this pleasant abiding permeates their entire mind and body. And again, I'll ask you, you don't have to answer, has anyone not experienced that? And I would bet that you all have. Furthermore, the ending of the defilements depends on the fourth jhana, which is, which is the abandonment of evaluation. The abandonment of evaluation. That's the first jhana, and it's also the awakened mind. Free of evaluation. I'm not judging this moment in any way. I'm simply a reference point to what's occurring. They enter and remain in the fourth jhana, which is pure equanimity and mindful. Pure equanimity and mindful. Being pure, neither pleasure nor pain is seen. So when you're in that fourth level of jhana, you know it because you're not experiencing pleasure or pain and you're not grasping after pleasure or pain. And again, no time frame, no time qualification. In this moment, have you established that fourth level of jhana? And again, I would bet, I don't gamble anymore, I would suspect that all of you have experienced that fourth level of jhana. And the reason why I'm teaching it and Saraputta is teaching it and the Buddha taught it is so you just recognize it. That's all. Don't grasp after it. But recognize that your concentration is increasing. The fourth jhana, which is a pleasant abiding. Have you had a pleasant abiding in your meditation? Sure you have. This is right meditation. This is the noble truth of the Eightfold Path of Practice that leads directly to the cessation of stress. I'm going to finish, I won't complete this, but I'm going to finish with this. Friends, it was here that the Tathagata set in motion the unexcelled wheel of Dhamma. He's reminding them again, this is where it all began. This Dhamma cannot be corrupted by any Brahman, Deva, Mara, Brahma, or anyone in the entire world. No one can corrupt the revelation, the declaration, the description, the structure, the explanation, and the clear and direct teaching of these four noble truths. And Muzzle finishes. This is what the Venerable Saraputta said. Gratified, those in attendance were delighted in his words. And delighted means that they are now awakening. They're in the process of awakening. So that's our today's sutta. Uh, I'm going to go to Rob, because I know you probably got to get to work. Um, not right away. Oh, but look. Well, <clears throat> I have to go Nice to see you all. Good to see you, Adam. Thank you. Rob. Thank you for teaching this uh, big whopper. Yeah, it is. <laughs> um, it's good to see here that, that uh, this is kind of the point where, where the Buddha's Dhamma kind of matures. Um, yes. 
and because he just he hands it off to yep. Sarah Puna. Yep, so and important. He says you've got this. Yep, and and you know he's. I see him like you know, we've we've got it now. I've taught it to people, and yeah. I, and and now I, I now I'm I'm confident that that others can teach this. Yeah. this is the wheel of the Dharma is turning here. Yes. Um, the, the, to me, this uh, I, I'm great. I, this is, to me, this is a momentous occasion in the in the mm-hmm. history of the Dharma yeah. because it is, it is just and it's and again, much like the original Sangha, we're doing the same thing here. And the Buddha goes off and takes a stroll. Yeah, well, he grabs his... Well, he ever used a walker, but... <laughs> some teachers grab their walker and take a stroll. Uh, let's go to... to we'll, go, we'll go into... Usually I do online first, but so don't, don't really forget to do that. But we'll go to Julia. Good morning, Julia. Good morning. Good morning, Jonas. Um, th- thank you very much for the teaching. I'm going to take noble silence. I, I think it's a very beautiful teaching. There's really nothing I could say to add to it. It's, it's, it's perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, Michael. Hi, John. That was uh, quite an undertaking there. There's a lot of a lot, a lot of stuff in here. Yeah, um, so not to get all caught up in all of this. Um, Are those all your notes just on this suit? I'm just curious. Excuse me? Are those your notes just on this suit? No, no. I, oh. I do the printout and then I scribble all over the pages. Oh, okay. But uh, I really didn't <laughs> scribble too much. I try to do more listening. And oh, it sure works for you. We gotta go. Sorry. Good to see you both. Thank you, John. You Thank you. You got. I, I made the. You heard the announcement on April 9th, right? Yes. Good. Yeah. I'll put it in the newsletter too. Thank you, John. Thank see you John. soon. Uh, I focus on cessation. Okay. Cessation. Liberation. Okay? Yeah. So, and I know the only way to do this, and uh, the way I the way I practice, so I go through my days, and uh, even through the subtle things. Uh, that you were talking or alluding to before, I should say. And there are subtle points there where it's like, you're kind of like, almost like bouncing on the head of a pin as to, yeah. is this the Dharma or is this self-referential? Yeah. It's that, I guess when you're that skilled, then you you can recognize that point. But it does, yeah. it does come to that. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, my thing, uh, again, no matter what occurs, uh, I always look at, Upon, uh, I look at his acceptance. Whatever occurs, we, yeah. you know, it comes to you. It's uh, it's before you. Uh, you're interacting. Whatever it is, yeah. accept Whatever it. It doesn't matter what it is. Yeah. It could be, I don't know. This building can go on fire right now. You know? All right. So then we have to do what we have to do to. One thing I do is call you. Michael's in fire. But you know, saying it, it doesn't matter what happens. No, know. it doesn't matter. Yeah, because it's what happened. It's whatever. It's got it nothing happens. to do with me. Nothing. Happening. Brilliant insight, Michael. Mm-hmm. It really does come down to that. You know, in this moment, is is am I am I engaging in the cessation of ignorance, or am I continuing it? That's really the choice we have. Thank you. Good morning, Dhamma teacher David. Good morning, John. I'm good to Thank you. Glad you're here. Good morning, Jeff. Good morning, John and everybody. Morning. Uh, great teaching. I'll need to remain silent this morning. I'm glad you're here. Let me go to Mary because I know she has to leave. So Mary, I'm glad you joined us. Hi, John. Hi, 
everybody. Wonderful, beautiful sutta. Um, you know, you could spend, I just have the feeling that I could spend the whole day on it, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm looking forward to retreat. Um, this really helps to get your mind focused on that. And of course, as always, there's parts of this I really needed to be reminded of this morning. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining us, Mary. Have a great brunch. Thank you. Hello, Brian. Morning, John. Um, yeah, I, there's a lot here. Thank you for this today. Um, I guess what hit me most was just as, he, as Sarah Preacher was going through what is stressful. It's it's the thing that gets stressed is anatta, right? Yeah. And generally speaking, like it's you're just taking stuff personally. Yep. And when you can just be that reference point and you're not taking it personally, the stress isn't there. So it's I guess I just was really resonating this morning. So thank you. Yeah, there is nothing that I should. I mean, when you think clearly about human life, there's nothing you can take personal except your own thoughts. That's where it begins. Uh, Dev, do you feel like uh, sharing anything with us? It's okay if you'd rather not, but uh, we'd love to hear what you have to say. Uh, well, I'll just be observing today, um, but thank you for being so thorough with the sutta today. Oh. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, thank you for joining, Dev. We'll talk soon. Hello, Kevin. Hello, John. Hello, everyone. Um, yeah, this is just pure hardwood. It's just the whole thing. All the whole Dhamma just all laid out again. Yeah. And it's so great. Repetition is so important. Yeah. So it's really good to go through it line by line as you did. And um, between this and the Tissa Sutta also is very uh, poignant for me. And when that came up, it, where I am right now. And um, it was very reassuring to go through that as well. Yeah. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah, the, the, the Tissa Sutta uh, gives us a lot of hope. And then this is the resolution of that hope, isn't it? You know, you can, we can actually awaken and develop uh, calm and peace. And again, it's the all the things going on in the world are things that go on in the world, and they've always gone on in the world. It, it seems like a, a special kind of time, uh, you know, right now, but it really isn't. It, it's a, it's a time to be aware of what's going on, but there's no reason to lose our minds over any of it. You know, and we found a way to do that, so we're very fortunate. Uh, we'll finish with Meta as we always do. Um, there is it, there it is. And so these are the Buddha's words on Meta from the Karaniya Meta Sutta. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud or demanding in nature. Let them not do the slightest thing that the wise would later reprove. May all beings be at ease, whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, medium, short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, 
so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings. Radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded, freed from hatred and ill will. Whether standing or walking, seated or lying down, free from drowsiness, one should sustain this recollection. This is said to be the sublime abiding. By not holding to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, having clarity of vision, being freed from all sense desires, is not born to get into this world. Thank you all for a wonderful class today. Thank you for listening. I rely on donations to support the continued restoration, preservation, and presentation of the Buddha's Dhamma. If you find benefit here, please consider a donation at becoming-buddha.com. Thank you. Peace.